NZ Aerosports, Icarus Canopies, now Gyro. That's right, we've rebranded, and Gyro is our next generation. It honours our founder, as that's the name we knew him by, but Gyro also marks the start of a new chapter. And not to be biased, but it's going to be fucking epic. Long story short, we're more us than ever. So if you're new to the sport, or even a Sky God Ninja Turtle, welcome. I think our valiant leader Lucy, Gyro's daughter, Says it best. And we still got that fuck your attitude. <laughs> Rebrand! Woo! Rebrand woo indeed, Lucy. Anyway, head over to gyro.com for more info and get amongst your legends. I was 19, broke, unemployed, and sold my girlfriend's canopy for drug money. So, I thought I'd better sell her a new one. What a sentence and what a story. This describes the humble yet outrageous beginnings of NZ Aerosports, the home of Icarus Canopies, in the words of our founder himself. From getting a paratrooper toy from his mom, watching parachutes at the DZ as a six-year-old, jumping off the wharf with a parachute made from bedsheets, doing his first jump at 16, sewing his first canopy on a borrowed machine at 19, and starting to sell parachutes out of a garage in 1986, Paul Gyro Martin had an undying love for the sky. Our company started with one man with the wildest of spirits in a true blue sky dream, a renegade. In the time that Gyro created and ran the Icarus Canopies brand until he passed away in 2017, he pushed everything he had to its limits. We miss him and we always will. Gyro is the next generation of NZ Aerosports. It honors our founder, of course, because it was the name we all knew him by, but Gyro the rebrand also marks the start of a new chapter, our next jump. Gyro is the space between sound and silence, art and science, chaos and calm. Gyro is a state of epic tranquility that transcends understanding. That moment, in the door, in free fall, mid-swoop, where nothing but the present exists. A perfect balance of euphoria and thrill. Gyro captures our passion for flying and our commitment to designing break-the-fucking-rules canopies that deliver pilots pure, wild flight. Coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go. All right, once again, it is the fucking pilot back in the can for another edition of Lunatic Fringe, and it's a special one, too, because I've got a co-host on this one. Who the fuck are you? Uh, you guys have talked to me before, uh, David Jr. Ludwig. Oh, look at this trying to put on the sexy radio voice <laughs> bullshit, man. Talk like yourself, Jesus. Yeah, it's uh, so yeah, Jr. back at it. All right, we guys. got Jr. back at it, but uh, again, via the magic of the internet, we got somebody with some serious shit to talk about, man. Cool stories and a whole lot of history. So who the fuck are you, and what do you do? Well, after the introduction, I'm up on a pedestal. Uh, my name is Rook Nelson, and I run Scott of Chicago. Oh, Rook Nelson. Yes, you do run Scott of Chicago, don't you? Oh, man. Even if they don't know who you are, everybody knows Scott of Chicago. 
Yeah. I mean, we try to make a footprint out there. <laughs> a footprint? Jesus Christ, a big footprint. There's no doubt about that. That's uh, Sky of Chicago is, is kind of uh, the end-all, be-all when you think of big drop zone skydiving. Yeah. I mean, you know, we like to have fun. Uh, you know, I think there's an advantage of us only being able to do it for part of the year uh, because we like to get done what we can get done in a season, take a break and then go at it again. It is kind of a feast or famine mentality, isn't it? You got to get it done while the, what is it, uh, make hay while the sun shines? Yeah, make hay while the sun shines. You know, my first uh, drop zone I was sponsored at, the DZO told uh, Mike Swanson and myself that, and I kind of I've always had that in the back of my head uh, for a really, really long time now. And, and that's what we do, man. Like, make hay while it shines. Yeah, it, man. It's going to be a great day. <laughs> well, the Midwest is, is definitely that way. Well, so uh, for those that don't know the name or uh, don't know the history, how did you get started in skydiving? Yeah, so I'm a third-generation skydiver. Uh, my grandfather was in the 82nd Airborne, uh, and through stories uh, that he told my father, my father forged his waiver when he was 16 and did his first jump at Ben Hinckley. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, yeah, and that was a long time ago. And then from there, uh, he started a drop zone in 1982, uh, just outside the Chicagoland area, and um you know, he just went at it. And in 1984, I did my first jump uh, before tandem was even invented. Yeah. Uh, it was an old lighting harness that they basically carabinered and parachute cord strapped myself to my dad. And oh, we went and, got, uh, and, and, uh, and how old were you then? Yeah, uh, I was four when I did the first one. Fucking and, uh, wait, you were four. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty crazy. And you know, a lot of people are like, do you remember that jump? And, you know, that's got to be insane. And, and to be honest, I don't remember the actual jump. Uh, what I remember about that was um, there's a picture of it here at Scott F. Chicago. And they're ha they're holding me. Or I'm, like, I'm actually like outside the airplane. And, you, you know, when they were doing the jump, they had me in this harness. And the harness was just basically webbing that was like woven together <laughs> to create like a structure that I wouldn't fall out of. Right. And it was just that it was just webbing. There was no, there was no padding. There was nothing. And I remember as I was hanging there by these, uh, um, carabiners, I was like, my legs were going numb, right. Cause it's just <laughs> webbing. And so they ended up going over to the packing mat and like cutting out carpet padding and shoving underneath the leg pads. <laughs> and uh, in the picture, you see like all the carpet padding, like around my junk. And, uh, I, that's the part I remember. I don't remember the actual jump, though. I just don't know that there is any part of that that's a good idea. <laughs> I mean, you know, it was a good like, idea. It worked out well. I yeah, mean, it did. It was, uh, looking back on it, though, so, uh, I mean, you're four years old. I don't remember anything about being four years old, and I certainly don't remember wanting to do anything as a four-year-old, certainly not jumping out of an airplane. But, I mean, holy shit. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I, I joke about it. I'm like, man, I just, you know, take the trash out. Otherwise, you get tossed out of an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell! Oh no, man. Well, and again, you like you said, this was this was pre-tandem, so um, mm -hmm. they were just kind of making it up. You were the test dummy, so to speak. <laughs> Pretty much, you know, the, the first jump was from about seven thousand feet. It was like a fifteen second delay, and and I did a couple more jumps between the ages of four and six, and the later ones were actually on tandems. Um, and I'm sure the tandem masters were stoked, right, taking a kid, not sure. some 250-pound big person. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but it was cool, you know. And and then, uh, you know, 
after those handful of jumps when I was really young, it was 94. I started again. Uh, I was 14 years old, and I think I got 27,000 jumps now. Jeez. Just won my 10th world championship, so been been getting after it. Yeah, you've been at it for a little while. You know, I took uh, um, I, I worked in New Zealand for a season a bunch of years back, and they don't have an age limit out there as well. And and the youngest now that I've ever taken was an eight year old. Um, mm-hmm. And even as an accomplished tandem instructor, I was shitting my fucking pants. I <laughs> threw the drogue and wrapped my arm around the kid. So for the entire sky. I'm just holding on to the kid, knowing damn well that's not going to do anything if it goes to shit. So I can't even imagine back then being four years old and you're basically just tied by webbing. Uh, but yeah. to go from that to becoming, you know, I mean, uh, multiple world champion running the biggest drop zone. Holy shit. There's there's quite a story there. Yeah. You know, um, you know, to continue on the story, you know, I started when I was 14 uh, and just started jumping my my butt off and I was actually packing parachutes. So I was making a kit like a really good living being 14 years old, just jumping when I could. And then, uh, you know, flash forward, uh, as soon as I finished high school, I moved out and still was working at the drop zone. And then flash forward to 2003, uh, tragic accident. My dad passed away in a really low canopy collision. And it kind of thrusted me to running the big show. You know, my sister and I were very active in the in the industry and the sport and our business. So it was pretty good that I wasn't like in a different career path and then, you know, had to switch gears all of a sudden. You know, I was very active in it and uh, definitely a game changer, to say the least. You know, I think I had blue hair and it was the 90s. So we were having a good time. (laughs) And uh, so, you know, cut the hair off, you know, get the right clothes on. And uh, just I was hopeful that I would never make a big enough mistake that I would lose everything. And, I, and I've and i made some mistakes. Uh, but I remember when I got the Sebastian deal, uh, it was the right place, right time. And, you know, I not, not only did I had taken over what my father had done, but I started to grow the business. And I remember that very vividly because I was like, man, I'm doing it. You know, like I've, I've I'm not just surviving, I'm thriving. Sure. And I remember going into the bank like and trying to ask him for money. Like just, you know, I've never went to business school. I'm a product of public education out here in the cornfield. So mm. I remember going to the bank just so nervous, like, man, I gotta ask these guys for a million dollars because I I I sold Sebastian before I even had an airplane for him. So I was like, fuck, what am I gonna do? So <laughs> <laughs> went into the bank, asked for some money. They gave it to me. I walked out thinking I had lucky underwear on and I should save these for the rest of my life. Right. And, uh, and then made it happen, you know, went and bought an airplane and, and got it down there. And now I just, uh, I think I'm up to eight airplanes now. Uh, just got a second sky van and, uh, just been, been getting after it, you know? And, um, you know, I, I feel fortunate that I'm surrounded with a really good team of people and they love what they do because we certainly don't get paid enough money. But, you know, there's a lot of passion in what we do. And I think it shows. And I think the people see it, too. We keep winning drops under the year and, uh, you know, it's humbling and and empowering at the same moment. So it's been fun. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I think we met each other back. Oh, man, early 2000s for sure. Um, yep. And I think at that point you guys had maybe two otters or th- three otters, I think, and you were selling one of them at the time. So to watch the growth that you guys have had over the years is just incredible to see it from the outside perspective and to see how the, the drop zone has grown and, and changed over the years. 
Well, one of the cool things that I always thought about Skydive Chicago, uh, I spent a little over four years working for the competition for Chicagoland Skydiving, which is, I, I guess you can't even call it competition because you guys are definitely the big show and it's more of a, a medium-sized drop zone, or at least it was when I was working there. Uh, but uh, one of the biggest uh, memories for me of that time was every year, come 4th of July, we'd pack shit up and go to your place because that's where the <laughs> fucking party was. I mean, <laughs> everybody was like can we can we finish it this drop zone now because we want to go to the big one where the all the fun stuff is happening and i had never been to chicago to scott of chicago before that very first fourth of july and you come pulling up down this this road that looks like it's in the middle of fucking nowhere and i'm like there can't be a goddamn drop zone out here no way and next thing you know there's a couple of trailers and i'm like, all right it looks a little bit like a drop zone but then there's a lake and a massive <laughs> hangar and all this shit in a neighborhood i could <laughs> I could not believe my eyes because by then, of course, Skydive Chicago was extremely well established. But uh, from the very first moment that I walked on there, I knew it was a whole different game. I mean, where did the vision come from from that? Because, I mean, I, I know your father had a huge vision and took it quite a long way, but you've gone next level. Yeah, you know, I, I think, um, you know, and, and, and to give Doug credit, like he, he built a new facility and it's beautiful. I mean, it's probably the nicest skydiving facility, uh, but I think it goes beyond the facility, right? You have to have the right people in the right culture uh, to really kind of make things fun. Oh, yeah. And, you know, my dad was uh, he had a very colorful past. And I think some of his visions came from his colorful past. Um And uh, that's one you know, way to put saw, it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, to be politically correct, the. Uh, you know, we still have the placemat of when um, he drew this this place out as he was uh, at a restaurant here in Ottawa uh, to his good friend, Michael John. And Michael John, you know, with the foresight to know that his friend is going to do this, takes the placemat and makes this big kind of like plaque with it. And it's up against the wall and it kind of resembles it. There's definitely some changes, but just to be able to see that is it's crazy. You know, sure. and I think. My father was a deal maker, you know, whether it was illegal or legal, uh, he was good at it. And, uh, um, you know, he, he just loved putting things together. He would just love to see things happen. And, and, you know, he was a builder and then, you know, here I come along as a skydiver and, you know, having been to the competitions and world meets and nationals and being, you know, pretty, pretty involved in the competition scene. I saw this place as a great venue for hosting competitions and hosting events, you know, world records, uh, everything. You know, we, I don't think there's an event we haven't done yet. Sure. Um, and it and it leads it lends itself really well because you know we can have a lot of people out here and it doesn't feel overwhelming, and we can do world records because our landing area is gigantic and plus we're in Illinois. I mean, there you can land anywhere really. Right. right. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's this like soybean or corn. Yeah, there's there's not too many places that you can't land out there. It's and it is a huge facility. It's absolutely enormous. For anybody that's not been to Skydive Chicago, you cannot conceive of just how fucking big this place is. It's huge. I mean, um, the a few different years when I was working for CSC, we would come over for the Fourth of July fireworks. We'd wrap up and then we'd fly over in both the planes and we'd do a flyby. But the flyby started like a mile away. Because it's ridiculous. It, that place was so huge. And um, with all the different events, I mean, you kind of basically took over the World Freefall Convention. So when did that start to transition? 
For sure. So we actually started the convention, my father did, uh, back in the 80s in Freeport, Illinois, with the Freak Brother Convention. And he had this fraternity where, you know, it was the Freak Brothers because him and his brother had really long hair. So they got the nickname, the Freaks. Sure. And then they just kind of ran with it. So they called them the Freak Brothers. And then that evolved. We were in Freeport. We were in, um, where'd they go? They were Bigfoot Freeport. And then we outgrew those. And then they moved to Quincy. Uh, and he started running the World Freefall Convention up until 1988, and then he had to go work for the government for a few years. In the interim, Don took it over and, and did a great job. You know, he got a lot of airplanes in there, and it's still to this day the largest skydiving event that's ever happened happened in Quincy. I think it was 5,500 people or something. Yeah, and right. it was right in the heyday, right, right when Point Break came out and skydiving was at you know its its heyday. Sure. Um, but then, like, as that kind of started dying off and, and more drop zones started getting turbine airplanes, you know, we, we kind of evolved it to where, like, it's not just turbine airplanes and it's not just being able to skydive. Like, how do you go beyond the boogie, right? You have good organizers, you know, world champions. You have good parties, good events. And, you know, we came up with Summerfest as kind of a not really a competition, but just to kind of try to get his event back after he was done with his government work. Sure. Um, we started to... We started that in 2002, I believe, or 2001 was the first Summerfest, and uh, this will be its 19th year. Wow. Um, you know, I'm sorry, this is this is the 18th year, 18th so it was 2002, the 18th year, because we're, we're a couple of years behind the year. Um, but it's grown. You know, the biggest Summerfest we've done is 1,200 people. It averages about six to 700 people, and, uh, you know, we challenge the guys every year, like, if you come to one Summerfest you can come back the next year and it feels like an entirely new event. Sure. And I feel that's where a lot of events kind of lose their lackluster is once you've been to them a few times, you kind of done it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't want anybody to ever say that about Summerfest. And I think that's why the longevity has, has ran its course and it doesn't seem to be losing any steam or motivation is we reinvent the same event every year. And it's, it's one of the hardest things to do, but you have to do it. Otherwise it'll just go away. Oh yeah. I mean, and, and, Think about it. What other, you know, event have you seen somebody launch a motorhome over top of a DC three? <laughs> yeah. All right. I, so so this, for the for the record, that is probably the coolest fireworks display I've ever seen in my life, including <laughs> beating out the world record one in the place that we don't talk about. Well, how exactly how did this come about that that you were going to launch this thing? I mean, wow. So so you know like. You know, we do a lot of fireworks show, and I'm blessed to have people in my network that love to blow stuff up. Uh, I have some people that I know, and uh, it's just a good form for it, you know. And and the thing about the stunts is that, and it is a total need-to-know basis. Like 90% of my staff have no idea what's going to happen, um, and it's the only the people that need to be involved know. And it's like, it's it's I don't even know what it is. It's like classified times ten, sure. where. I wanted to impress the people that work hard for me sure. just as much as I want to impress the people that are there for a visit. And, uh, you know, there's always a lot of excitement and, uh, buzz around the fireworks show because we always do a pretty cool UFO jump yep. and then we blow something up, whether it's, you know, jumping the RV over the DC three, uh, <laughs> or, you know, whatever we do, it's always kind of a little bit redneckish, but you know, we are in the middle of the country in, yep. in Ottawa, Illinois. So we're allowed to be a little redneck and, uh, but uh, again, like we just keep trying to reinvent it. You know, what can we do that's cooler? And, you know, there are some stunts that came across on our little think tank that I wouldn't. There's like no way, man. Like 
I like, you know, I like a little bit of margin of error. And when they're like, oh, you can swoop under this thing that's going to be on fire, jumping over top of you that weighs two tons. I'm like, you know, maybe we'll try something different. Oh, man. Oh, man. Well, you know, it's funny because uh, um, before I started working in Chicago, I'd never been out that direction for a Summerfest. And every year that I worked, I would only be able to go briefly visit what was going on at Summerfest because, of course, I was working as well. But it's the only uh, boogie that I know of where people would go to the boogie no matter what. They're going to go every year and maybe they'll jump. Yeah, (laughs) maybe they'll get a skydive in, but it's not it has nothing to do with that. And these are people that don't just have a few jumps. These are people that have thousands and thousands of skydives that are going to go for the entire boogie. And maybe they'll put their rig on. But it's that good a time and it's that big a draw. And it's that much of the I mean, it's call it the almost a a burning man of skydiving kind of need to go to event for a lot of people. And that's just not in the States. That's around the world. And I mean, if it's a record, yeah. if it's a record year, then it's really going to be big. Oh, fucking hell! Yeah, so we we've moved the records away from Summerfest because the records are now it's too big of an event to do on top of a big event. So mm. we kind of separated those out. Um, but yeah, I mean, like you know, we try to we we try to make Summerfest cool. You know? Well, the logistics of either the records or Summerfest has got to be insane. So when this shit's going on, are you able to get out there and let your hair down and enjoy, or is it just? <laughs> Are you a hundred miles an hour working it? Yeah, for sure. You know, like again, I say my I have the most I have the best staff in skydiving because they love what they do. And when it comes to an event, we all collapse in. Our our job titles mean absolutely nothing. And whatever needs to get done, we need to get done. So, you know, we'll have people that, you know, maybe their job is to work in the office, but they're out there cleaning toilets, taking trash out, you know, whatever needs to happen happens because we want to make sure that everybody has a good time and they come back. Sure. Uh so Man, my staff really put their their best foot forward, and we just whatever hurdles in front of us, we just tackle with it without any sort of resistance or or you know this isn't my job type you know mentality, and uh, you know I think it shows and it shows that you know DZ Awards keeps naming it the best boogie ever. Oh yeah, and it's it's definitely evolved where I agree in the past it used to be a huge party. But now you can actually come to Summerfest as a novice skydiver or any type of level skydiver and leave a better skydiver. You know, we have rhythm and core. And I think we had 37 people on the on the LO list last year. Wow. Um, and, they, and we dedicate each person to a specific type of skydiving, whether you're intro free fly, intro belly fly, all the way up to ninjas, uh, tracking angles, all the good stuff. And uh, you can leave a better skydiver, which I think is ultimately what we're trying to produce with Summerfest. Uh, you know, there were some years that definitely uh, are more party years. But I think the the late the latest versions of Summerfest, there's a lot of skydiving. Um, there's definitely partying every night. But the last night is the full blowout party <laughs> where everybody lets their hair down. And, you know, I remember a few Summerfests. I had people walk up to me because uh, I play some, you know, I DJ a little bit and, uh I remember one guy walked up to me and he's like screaming at me to turn the music down because it was like 2.30 or 3 in the morning. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, sure, I'll go tell the owner. And, uh, you know, that guy, I saw that guy later at a different drop zone. And he's like, you don't remember me, do you? I'm like, no, actually, I don't. He's like, I was the one that turned, told you to turn the music down. <laughs> I'm like, oh, 
I see. You, I hope you understand why that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was not gonna happen. Well, to take to to take a, st- a few steps back. So you got started in your skydiving career in in basically uh, an operation that was family built. I mean, your dad built this place from the ground up with his close friends, and you strolled in and decided you were gonna you were gonna embrace the lifestyle. So you start jumping at a very young age, and you're packing and making good money. But when did you start jumping for money, and when did you decide competition is what I want. I want to do this. I want to try that. I mean, what was that progression for you? Yeah. So, um, you know, I was packing and I started jumping and obviously when you make the most money is the weekend. So I wasn't jumping too much because I was still going to school. But uh, when I was 18, I started getting all my ratings. And I remember my dad very vividly being like, hey, you should get a tandem rating just in case, you know, we need you for some tandems here and there. And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll get a tandem rating. And I think that year I did like a thousand tandems. <laughs> I see what you did there, Dad. <laughs> Most parents um, just get their kids to pack. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but it was fun. You know, I was making some pretty good money. And, uh, you know, when I was 18, I went to my first nationals in Sebastian uh, with a free fly team because it was the first year free flying was a discipline and came in sixth place. And, uh, you know, I didn't realize that this is how ignorant I was. My team showed up with six different free rounds, right? Free flying is an eight round event. There's two compulsory rounds and then six free rounds. I didn't realize that you're supposed to do the same free round every single time. (laughs) And we had six different free rounds, all of which were mediocre because like, that's a lot of moves to come up with. Yeah, it is. And uh, I definitely got educated that first year. And, you know, then they kind of the rest is history. I I started going almost every year competing in, uh, I think I've competed in everything except for crew, uh, and meddled in everything except for crew, which is kind of a good accomplishment, I think. And, uh, you know, as it progressed, you know, the subjectivity of free flying just kind of rubs you the wrong way when you're, you know, not scoring the scores that you want. And, uh, we started moving to a point basis and, you know, VFS came along with my sister and Eric Darren kind of leading the charge. And, uh, once that happened, man, I really kind of fell in love with the VFS and have been doing that for, gosh, 10 years now. Sure. And uh, just came back from France with uh, Core, winning the indoor world championships. Uh, and it's fun, man. I, I, I Honestly, what I've learned over 20 years of competing is that, you know, the competition is fun. Uh, the training is very difficult. But ultimately, like once you find the right teammates, uh, winning is a side effect of just not letting your teammates down. And I've had great teammates throughout the, my entire career. I'm not kind of dissing on anybody, but definitely the team I have now, like, some of the best teammates, just the vibe of it and how we mesh together is, is really cool. Well, I mean, isn't that what it is uh, anyway? I mean, uh, you can liken it to, to a relationship with a couple. Uh, some people are just better together as a team or they're better apart. doesn't make them bad people or bad skydivers. They're just not as good these two together as a team as the others, you know. So uh, skydivers just stand alone but not necessarily a great team. Uh, so it's a matter of finding the right people that are going to make that kick-ass mix. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you basically marry these people too, right? Oh, yeah. I, I think I, you know, given given the discipline that I am, I think I touch my teammates more than I touch my wife, <laughs> which may be a bad thing. But <laughs> right, you, you must have done it right at least once because you've got a little one now, don't you? Yeah, that's right. I've touched her at least once. Exactly. All right. Now, does your wife skydive? Uh, she she has. She's an uh, she's an attorney. She has sixty jumps, and uh, you know, she's very. Um, she doesn't like architecting on the fly, right? And I can't, I can't give her every scenario that's going to happen in the sky. Sometimes you have to just make decisions based on 
it, it's like a game of poker, right? You have to make decisions based on the hand in front of you, not knowing every combination that could possibly happen. Sure. And, you know, given her background of being a lawyer, she likes, you know, law, statute, resolution. And she likes that very methodical, there's A is going to happen, B is the result, you know, and, and uh, she just wasn't her thing. Mm. And I always kind of joke opposites attract, right? And she lets me jump and she's supportive and it's great. And, uh, you know, I watch Rocket while she, be, while she you know, watches law movies. And yeah, well, <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny. I talked to uh, uh, Patrick Kay in an earlier podcast, and, and uh, of course, he and his wife are both jumpers, but they don't jump together. And he's he's fervent about that. He's, I'm not jumping with her. I'm not coaching her for shit. There's no way in yeah. hell. That's the biggest mistake you could possibly make. And Junior here will vouch for it as well. I do a little bit of it. We we. We uh, we jump together every once in a while, but it's it's very rare and few and far in between. I, I personally, unless um, you're like uh, uh, you know Craig Gerard, who got lucky and found his perfect soulmate, who happens to be a badass skydiver, uh, I think jumping yep. with your significant others tough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like the old saying, you should never teach a family member how to drive a stick shift, right? <laughs> Damn straight. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you you just got back from the huge indoor competition. I mean, this is... Yeah, we just, yeah, we just got back from France, uh, went over there. You know, we lost in Montreal at the last world meet, uh, which was unfortunate. And boy, what a motivator that'll be. Mm. And we, didn't, we certainly didn't want to lose at this one. So we trained a lot. And uh, it was, you know, I'm an outdoor skydiver enthusiasm to, to the fullest degree and man we've been doing a lot of indoor stuff and you know i heard the phrase at the world meet uh in france they're like man there's two more rounds before outdoor season starts and i was like man i resonated with that a lot sure. like, i can't wait to skydive man i'm sick of being in the tube well you know? what do you think about the uh i mean indoor uh, the the tunnels now are their own sport in its own there's there's people that have never seen the bottom of a nylon canopy uh, that are yeah. badass flyers. I mean, it's it, how do you feel about how much it's been a game changer? Yeah, you know, I, I have mixed feelings about the wind tunnels. Uh, you know, just to start to, to, to comment on that, the I believe that a wind tunnel can make a better skydiver. I don't believe that the wind tunnels are making skydivers. So I think we have to walk a very delicate line on how, uh, you know, USPA and skydiving as, a, as an industry embraces wind tunnels i don't think that they're bad but i just don't think we can pour all of our resources into tunnels because all of a sudden skydiving is going to be this this sport that we used to do and if you look at the youth of today they're all in the wind tunnels mm. a because they can fly in the tunnels but b uh if the youth isn't participating in skydiving then there's going to be no future skydivers sure. right like obviously it, it's this the natural progression so, um, you know, like I have mixed emotions about the, the museum and the wind tunnel being right next door. Uh, you know, it's, it's a co probably a different podcast topic. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I certainly think that the wind tunnels are starting to become um, its own sport and, and, and popularity. You know, and unfortunately, they didn't get into the Olympics. But, you know, I think there's potential for that. And, um you know, I, I guess I'm still an outdoor guy, but oh yeah, know. well no, you and I both. I mean, I actually started my career uh, uh, as a tunnel instructor in the old Vegas tunnel way back in the day, um, and okay. I en I enjoy the the new tunnels, but I I am not what you would call a tunnel flyer. And I remember the mentality about tunnels as the first iFlies came out was that it was going to be something that was going to aim people and drive people towards skydiving. I don't think anybody envisioned that it would become its own end all and be all, and it 
kind of yeah. has. Um, so you're right in that uh, I don't think it did what a lot of people thought it was going to do. It didn't up skydiving. It just upped tunnel flyers, which mm-hmm. is there's nothing yeah. wrong with that, but it's not quite a direct translation. And although it definitely does help out in skill in the sky, there's no replacement for stepping off an airplane. No, but like Rook said, it, uh, it, it's, made, it's made the skydivers better. Sure. You know, you, you see you see better flyers, and I think it was the 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 sixty nine way uh, head down record, which I think it was Rook or, or Mike or one of those guys looked over um, at Derek Cox, and he had very few skydives at the time. He was definitely in the largest parachute out of everybody that was that was flying, and mm. you look over him like, "Can you stick it?" He's like, "Yeah, yeah, where do I need to go?" And sure, he, and, I, and well, there, there became the first thirty dollar whore. <laughs> yeah, no, no one. <laughs> I, I, I think. The, Aren't you one of those people too, Junior? I, I, I yeah, I was the second one. <laughs> Not for that you know, reason. The following one. <laughs> it's a funny story though, and I think we should say it is that Junior came out to one of the records. I think it was the was it a one hundred eight way? Was it the, the one hundred eight was the one that I was the thirty dollar whore on. The sixty nine way was yeah, the yeah. one that I almost got cut because you didn't remember what my real name was. Yeah, what well, was the. No, I thought it was the 108 way that we're rotating people in and you walked up to me and you're like, Rook, why, why are you putting these other people in? I was like, dude, you're not on the list. And then I was like, your name isn't Junior because we were looking at like the list that's on the FAI website. Right. And I'm like, there's Junior on this list. He's like, dude, that's not my name. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oops. Yeah, oops. There, was, there was two of those. I think that was the, the second time. But the 69 way, you walked up to me and I, I – when you guys announced who was who was going to be on the record, and I was like, "Oh, awesome!" And you walked right up to me. You're like, "Bro, you almost got cut." He goes, "If I had to go find, I think it was either T.J. Langren or or uh, Sporto, late at night <laughs> to try to figure out what my real name was, so I could actually get on the record." <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, you gotta love it. Oh man, I mean, I think that uh, honestly, I think that the tunnels are a, a mixed blessing. I'm a lot like you, and that I think uh, I think they add a lot to uh, a skydiver's value as far as being able to get out and train. I think they're a detriment in regard to. Um, basic safety in the beginning uh if somebody's too cocky in the tunnel and they don't know how to fly a parachute or they don't know break off and they don't know traffic patterns and stuff i think that's where it gets kind of scary um and i think that's where it just comes down to proper training you know throughout somebody's career um that's that's the only place that i see the tunnel being a bit of a detriment yeah but you look yeah at- I, I, the, the um you know as far as a business standpoint, like we see a continual drop in tandem jumps, but you know, I start to hear the conversation, Hey, have you gone skydiving? No, I've done the indoor. Mm-hmm. And that sh- that to me shows content. Like maybe they were going to skydive, but then they went and did indoor and now they're good because they did the virtual reality and look like a retard sure. flying around in this tube and they just didn't want to jump out of an airplane. You know, I'm well, like, come on, get outside. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we're fucking Jesus. We're living in a generation where people are living their entire lives, you know, with the fucking phone in their hands. So, uh, as depressing as it is, I don't see that changing. People are, are really happy to take the next best thing instead of going out and doing the real thing, which is, uh, yeah, that's that, that's a whole other fucking podcast too. That's just what's yeah. wrong with the, us as a society anymore. Yeah, I mean, holy that, shit, down the rabbit hole there, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, you just uh, you have no idea what it's really like until that door opens and you got to step out of the airplane. And I don't care if they can make it exactly the same sensation wise in the tunnel. It's never going to be jumping out of a plane ever. Yeah, I agree. Speaking of jumping out of airplanes. What's it like from your side um, being on 
the first few free fly or the first few head down records to the transition to where you started organizing them and now you're getting larger and larger and larger and, and needing more and more organizers to help out with it. What's it, what's it been like for you to, to watch that grow? Yeah, it's been good. Um, you know, I, I, I remember there was an article and they're like, what are the two things you want to do in life? And I was like, Hey, you want a house without wheels and B organize the first hundred way head down record. <laughs> and, uh, I did it in the same year and I was like, well, God, what do I do now? Uh, but it's great, man. Like, you know, definitely, you know, keeping on that tunnel subject, you know, now we have to ask people, well, how many jumps do you have? How many tunnel hours do you have? Mm. And there's people uh, that have been on records with 200, 300 jumps. Uh, and that's it. You yep. know what I mean? And yep. they got, you know, 500 hours in the wind tunnel, which is great. But um, it's cool, man. You know, I, I'm, I'm really kind of bummed about this last record, given the, the weather situation. But, you know, this is the first time we, we kind of left without getting a record. So, it, it's it's good in a way, you know, it makes you want it a little bit more, makes people deserve it a little bit more. Uh, certainly it's a, a lot more work for us, but, you know, if it's what you do, it's what you do. And it's great. You know, I'd love to see that 200 number be eclipsed. And had we had good weather, man, we would have gotten it no problem. Mm. You know, I just, that, you know, I when we finished that event, I was so bitter that I didn't watch any of the videos. And then Ryan Patrick made the the video for us, they had kind of a recap. And watching those videos, I just got so angry because we were so close to it. And had we had just a few more tries, we would have got it no problem. And I think that's just the competitive side of me. Sure. You know, and really all I'm trying to do is beat my own record. So I'm not who I'm not really sure who I'm competing against, but it's just my nature just wanting to do it better. Sure. Well, um, what's the next step in it? What do, what do you what are you guys thinking about for the next attempt? How how long? How how many people? What do you for sure. So we'll, we'll probably ramp up to do the same thing, a 200 way. Um, and uh, in three years, you know, that's the cycle for it. You know, I, I want longevity in that project to where if we did it every other year, people would get sick of it and we'd run out of people. You know what I mean? It's something that people need to to witness. And, you know, I have people that come up to me and they're like, Rook, I watched you in 2015 and I sat on the ground and you got the record and I told myself I was going to be on the next one. And ultimately, like you give people that drive and the goal and, and a reason to be in the sport. And that's fulfilling. You know what I mean? Like that's super rad that, you know, I can influence people in a manner to them getting after these three years of skydiving and achieving their goal. You know, it's a lifelong goal because at the end of the day, you could become a really good skydiver. And then what do you have to show for it? You know, I'm, I'm in debt. I have no retirement and my, my joints are sore. But if I can give these guys a record and they can put that picture above their fireplace of them and they every person that walks in their house, look, that's me on a 200 way. Well, then it gives them justification, right? It gives them a purpose and, and some drive and, and that feels good. Yeah, for sure. absolutely. Well, I remember watching, uh, I started jumping 95 ish, right? As free flying was just starting to come into its own. And I remember, um, watching in uh, a trailer in Paris Valley, um, with a couple of buddies stoned off my ass watching, uh, the Chronicles 1 video with Olaf Zipser running upside down to the camera to a Sublime song, doing a couple of cartwheels, and then back on his head and running away. And yeah. whether it was my state of mind or what he actually did, I sat there and went, what the fuck did I just watch? Holy yeah. shit. I want to be able to do that. And, of course, then for the next couple of years, I'm trying to figure out how to you know learn to deliver pizzas because that's how you flew. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and uh, meanwhile... We all deliver pizzas. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. You know, and uh, uh, meanwhile, I'm trying trying to, to recreate the same thing in the Vegas tunnel, which if you've ever flown in there, it's, 
it's a great ride. It's a lot of fun, but you cannot fly like that in there. And and so just being able to see that kind of thing going on, but now to see, I mean, a 200 way, I never would have conceived of something like that. I mean, when I started out, it was a big deal if you got three people together. Yeah, you know, sure. <laughs> and it just has grown so much more. And I don't, I don't know where I see. It. I mean, I almost see it at this point that the limit's going to basically be eventually lift capacity and landing area. Yeah, for sure, it's going to be lift capacity. But I think we're a ways out from that. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of airplanes in in the in the states that we can utilize, and you know, we do the projects during the week, a Monday through Friday. So, you know, we're, we can steal a lot of airplanes of people that need them on the weekends. Mm. And, uh, you know, yeah. And it's cool, man. Like the first record was an 18 way, uh, that we did in Sebastian in what did we do that in like 2004 or something like that? 2000, no, two, earlier than that it was 2002, I think. And to think, you know, in, in, uh, a handful of years, we're doing 200. I mean, that's awesome. Yeah, it's that's just super. such a crazy fast progression. It's so fantastic. Well, and, and you've got the fleet there to be able to do some pretty substantial jumps just with your own operation. I mean, how many aircraft did you say you're running now? Yeah, I mean, we could do 100 ways on any given weekend. Uh, it would take a little bit of logistics, but um, we can do that. <laughs> that's, that's obscene. Oh, my yeah. God. And it's it's primarily otters, Yeah. Yeah, there's the three otters and the sky vans and, you know, it's it's no secret that, you know, the military is kind of, it works well mm. <laughs> if oh, you yeah. can get into that gig. So, you know, like, as I mentioned, the tandem market seems to be kind of not the greatest as it used to be, unless you talk to Mike Veter out in Oceanside, who's doing a million tandems a year, which yep. is great. Yep. But for the rest of us who doesn't don't live between L.A. and San Diego, um, and given there's the wind tunnel situation, like the tandem market isn't what it used to be. No. And so just trying to find other avenues of revenue and, you know, military is definitely one of those things that is uh, is out there that you got to kind of get after. The tandem market seems to have gone to a very much a location driven uh, moneymaker now, because if you go to places like Oceanside or you're in New Zealand or you're in Dubai or you're yep. in the Bay Area where you're over the coast and you've got these amazing views, then they don't really see as big a dip just because it's that wow factor. You know, I mean, yeah, the destination for sure. Yeah, the destination tandems, I don't think have, have really backed down. But at the end of the day, you're in a corn. <laughs> you know? yeah. So we are we are definitely it's a. Uh, it's God's country, man. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, in the for as many times as I've flown from CSC to Skydive Chicago, never once would I have spotted that fucking drop zone before I was over the top of it. Yeah, because sure. <laughs> I think the people that uh, made cartoons where they have the same background just running behind whatever's in, on the screen, they definitely grew up in the Midwest. Right. They have driven. <laughs> Midwest. <laughs> you know, it's so funny, though, because I didn't know a lot of the history of, of uh, Midwest skydiving before I ended up working uh, in Hinkley. And I was uh, when I went to CSC for the first time, uh, the first three years I was there was before it went to Rochelle in Hinkley. And I had no idea how much history was there. And then I started to yeah. hear more and more about it. And and from uh, I talked to your sister, I talked to Dan BC and all these guys that got started in the Midwest. And really, that's kind of where modern skydiving in the U.S kicked off i mean it's yeah i mean a lot of a lot of homies started here i mean like what else is there to do you know what i mean if, <laughs> if you're not a farmer like what else are you gonna do jump out of airplane right. sure because you're not surfing you're not snowboarding you know there's a lot of uh a lot of uh i should say there's a lack of a lot of things sure to do, sure so. 
Well, now uh, outside of uh, outside of skydiving, have you ever have you got any other any drives, any other extreme activities that you're up to? Uh, yeah, I mean, I do a couple of base trips a year, um, which is pretty fun. I get to travel across the world, and I think there again, I, I look at base trips like destinations, right? You know, jumping over the shipwreck in Greece mm. and going to Mexico, big cliffs and stuff like that. Like, I'm not, you know, climbing the local tower. You know sure, what I mean? sure. I've done it, and I, you know, I'm I've kind of progressed past that, but. You know, it's always something adventurous, you know, doing a lot of stuff with the family now, which is really cool and a new adventure for me and uh, been really having fun there. And yeah, just, you know, trying to stay relevant and having fun. That's which is exactly what it's supposed to be about. I mean, what do you see as the as the future for Scott of Chicago? Uh, um, what, are, what are you pushing for? Are there any new things on the horizon? Oh, man, it, <laughs> I have records basically every year until the next head down co-ed record. Um, you know, I, you know, the staff, I kind of brief them on like, you know, people I don't think are going to move to the Midwest and live in Chicago and, and jump, especially if you're not from here. Mm. But to look at the drop zone like a Red Rocks venue, and we have a lot of people wanting to do their events here. And, uh, you know, I don't think there's a single weekend there's not an event happening. You know, I, I think Memorial Day kicks it off and then until October, there's there's an event every weekend and not just our events, but people coming here with their, uh, you know, with their 20 ways, 60 ways you know, chick, chick, chick events. And, sure. um, and that's, you know, we were already booking the calendar for 2020. So we're definitely becoming that kind of destination place for people to do events. Cause we do them well, we have the facilities and, uh, you know, a lot of times people enjoy traveling to do these things just, just like a destination tandem. Sure. They want to do a destination event. So uh, a bit of that stuff. And, you know, hopefully down the road, Rocket wants to take over so I can just drink margaritas and cut the grass. Here. <laughs> <laughs> that's you know, he's going to, want to be a dentist and i'm going to be like man i could have sold this place 20 years all right. ago and <laughs> all right well now uh, obviously in the midwest uh, we already talked about make hay while the sunshine so to speak but uh, you've got options uh, nowadays outside of it once the weather uh, turns to shit in the midwest which i've been yep. and i've seen way too much in my life that's where uh, i got my start i'm never fucking doing another chicago winter never um but you've got options i mean you do other stuff you've been down to puerto rico every year haven't you yeah, we don't do the Puerto Rico trip anymore, but, you know, I've had Mexico drop zones. Uh, we have the long-term contract in Sebastian, so that's kind of where we winter most of the time and then do a handful of stuff. Uh, we did a Bahamas trip just recently. We're working on a Jamaica trip. Uh, we've done the Panama trip. Um, you know, we're, we got a group going to the Maldives this year wow. with, uh, with Rich Graham, which is going to be awesome. And, uh, yeah, man, just, just trying to stay some, somewhat busy in the winter because, as you know, the winters can be trying here in the old Midwest. Yeah, so. they Cold can. And, and snowy. I ended up spending all, all four years that I was flying for Chicagoland on the road with that plane. And, uh, yeah, a lot of shitty hotel rooms just to stay the hell away from that weather, man. Yeah. Uh, you loved it, too, right? Uh, yeah, it. every minute of it. It was just amazing. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. So it, you've got the, the Sebastian thing. How long did you do Puerto Rico for? Uh, man, we did it for a while. I think it was eight or nine years. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah. And then, you know, those guys are just an interesting group of people to work with. <laughs> I've, and, I've heard uh, stories. Yeah. So, you know, 
it is what it is. There's no hard feelings. I just don't need to be there. And I, there's other things to do. So I had the opportunity to go down that direction because uh, I decided I was going to go try and be an adult for a while. And when I left CSC, I ended up going to Seaborne Airlines, which is out of St. Croix. Uh, and Gosh. we'd fly into to San Juan all the time. And I kind of went to check out. I was going to go check out the drop zone and uh, uh, was was given some advice that kept me from ever going to, to visit. <laughs> so I never did make it out that way. But even after yeah. even after pulling out of pulling out of Puerto Rico, you still did some philanthropy stuff when they had the um, what was it that, yeah, went, that so went down there? You guys, you I know you, you were, were one of the your, you were the first air, yeah, the first scouting aircraft into the disaster, weren't you? You flew in there, were yeah, taking rescue know, animals and Haiti, stuff. Haiti, yeah. When Haiti had the earthquake, we went down there a couple of times, and then because uh, we're in Florida, right? Like if you have the resources to help people and you don't, that you're just you're just an excuse of a human being, yeah, really. Yep, yeah. and. Uh, you know, and then when they had the uh, the hurricane take out Puerto Rico, we got connected. One of the jumpers in Sebastian was like, hey, Rook, you know, can you go down there and get these animals? And I'm like, sure. And uh, got connected with uh, some networks down there and, and some people that, that may help made those trips happen. And, man, they were bringing back like 50 dogs at a time. And, and the coolest trips, and I, I didn't, unfortunately, I didn't get to do it. Dave Schwartz did, the, did I think, most of them. And uh, he said, man, like when he brought the first couple of trips, the dogs back, and pets because people just had to leave the island sure. and they wouldn't let them take pets with them. So the re, uh, reunion of um, reuniting of the animals to the owners, he said, was just tear, tear jerking. You know what I mean? Here's these guys that this dog has been their best friend that they just had to leave on the island. And then for him to be able to bring him back stateside and be like, here's your dog. Yeah. Like, man, that was, you know, and, and then towards the end, we were just bringing shelter dogs back where the shelter couldn't really, uh, support because there was no infrastructure down there anymore sure so we're bringing those animals back and they were giving them to local shelters to give away and um man it was really cool and you know we got to meet uh, kenny chesney was involved with that yeah. and uh, was on the i think it was on the ellen show that they brought some of the dogs on so there was uh, some good exposure and i'd never really do it for the exposure but it's always nice That's to see nice little side effect know, yeah, a nice side effect. And uh, now, when you went you know, into guess, when you went into Haiti, that was some some serious bush flying. I mean, you were they were landing yeah. off field in the middle of nowhere, weren't they? Yeah, we we did everything into Port-au-Prince, uh, and uh, it was it was cool the first couple of trips. Um, and by the time we were done, you know, there's a saying that you can give a guy a fish and you can teach a guy how to fish, and there's one of them that's going to last a whole lot longer. And there was so much goods going into Haiti that I didn't feel bad that we were done. Mm. And, uh, I mean, the airport was inundated with stuff. I mean, and the stuff was going bad cause it was pallets and pallets of water sitting out in the sun sure. and food and all this stuff just sitting out on the airport because they couldn't get it to where it needed to go fast enough. And I mean, there was, there was like cargo planes, like seven fours coming in there. There was every every airplane known to man. And it was such a cluster because it was a single runway airport. Sure. So you'd sometimes have to like hold short for like 30 minutes getting out of there. And that's when I was like, man, they're getting stuff and we should be, te we should be bringing them fishing poles right now. Right, you know, like right. this is how you guys survive. We've given you enough to make it past this, this hurdle. And, uh, what? you know, when I'm starting to load up keyboards and stereos and TVs in the back of the airport, <laughs> oh, like, 
all right like we we've did it you know what i mean yeah yeah well and when you got the the food and water just uh rotting in the sun on the on the runway because politics and red tape have taken over then it's time to walk away it was sad you know like we were and I, this is probably the wrong thing to say on the radio but i mean our tires were flat rolling out of the airports in florida and uh we were we were bringing our share for fair share of stuff down there. <laughs> <laughs> right. For sure. Yeah. Well, man, well, I'll tell you what, though, you were right, though. If you've got the resources to do it, I mean, at least you did your fair share. And, and when it got to the point where you realized you weren't making a dent in it or it wasn't helping anymore, then why the fuck would you? You know, I mean, at that point, you get to hold your head up high and go, no, 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 we did our bit for sure. And, you know, it's, sure. and not a lot of people get to say something like that. And you wouldn't expect that for any non skydivers listening to the podcast. I guarantee a lot of them. Are, are now kind of surprised. Oh, wait, you mean these guys aren't just a bunch of nutcases that throw themselves out of airplanes and party too hard? You know, I mean, well, we, we do that too. That. We are human. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just uh, um, it, it, uh, one of the, the funny things is I don't think people get that impression. They wouldn't think that that would be something that would be done. And, and I remember when all that was going on, being jealous that I wasn't able to hop in and, and do any of those flights. Um, cause I just thought it was the fucking coolest thing ever. Uh, especially as a jump pilot that usually just goes up and down and lands on the same field. Holy shit. I get to go straight for more than 30 seconds and I'm yeah, going to go do something. Better. And yeah, <laughs> just amazing. Super, super cool. And, uh, yeah. I mean, what a, what an awesome reason to, to, to do it. You know, hopefully there's there's never another reason to, to go that route, but you know, for sure. Yeah. My, my hats are, de my hats definitely off to you guys. I mean, it was amazing when I saw, uh, I think it was, um, Dave Schwartz had posted up a picture on Facebook being down there and, um, there was so much stuff, other stuff going on. I didn't, I never reached out to you, but man, I was, I was super impressed that, that you took the time away from, from skydiving and from flying and stuff like that to, to allow your aircraft down there to do that kind of stuff. It was awesome. Well, and nothing in regard to aircraft is inexpensive. There's no. nothing cheap about. Uh, well, what's the what's the old horrible joke? And I'll say it because it's my podcast. If it floats, flies, or fucks, rent don't buy. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I thought you were going to do, do the do the other one, which is uh, if you want to make a million dollars skydiving, start with two. Yeah, yeah. Well, same same thing. But man, when it comes to planes, everything is so expensive. Actually, I'm going to open up an old wound. I think it was your aircraft. Two skydive Chicago otters. Wasn't there a, a problem with a startup and one taxied into another? Oh yeah, oh, that was uh, that had to stay. In fact, that was on the way to Puerto Rico. Was it? <laughs> oh Maybe man, we don't do that trip anymore. <laughs> oh, yeah, we had, uh, all three of them lined up, just ready to taxi out, full of fuel, right? Three hundred plus gallons of fuel, and uh, one of the, the, you know, we always do like a quick overview maintenance wise before they head out because you know it's seven hours over the water yeah. to get there. And, uh, you know, the guys just do a once over and they had pulled the hydraulic breaker Ugh. and, uh, the way that we have to park in Sebastian, you have to like come at the tie downs 90 degrees and then do a sharp turn to get onto the tie downs. Cause there's a fence on the backside. Sure. And, uh, you know, if, if you do that sharp turn and don't straighten out the nose wheel after you do the turn, you know, the nose wheel still turns sure. basically it turned 90 degrees and. The hydraulic breaker was popped. This person was a little bit late for, you know, getting out, pretty nervous, about to do their first flight over the water, seven hours. Starts the airplane, goes to engage generators, realizes that she's got no brakes, she's got no steering, and taxis the airplane straight into the other one, prop to prop. They're both running and just destroys just, yeah. I can't only imagine, like, what that noise was like, right? Because no. it ripped it ripped one of the engines in half. Like 
it it was it was a rough day. I wasn't there. I was actually in Colorado, and uh, I, I remember the phone call that Dave Schwartz made to me that morning because I told him, I'm like, hey, just call me, man, if anything goes wrong. And you know, like my kids, <laughs> my airplanes are a lot, a lot like my kids, and I get this phone call at like four in the morning. <sighs> And I, I just knew what was happening, right? I picked up the phone and I could hear it in Dave's voice. Dave's like, man, Rookie, it's bad. And I was like, is anybody dead? And he's like, no. I'm like, it's not that bad. And he's like, no, it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I was like, nobody died, dude. It can't be that bad. And uh, he's like, man, it's it's bad. He's like, I'm going to send you some pictures. And, man, I saw those pictures and my heart sank. I was just like, A, I was so happy that nobody got hurt because sure. – like and there was no fire. Right. right. I could not believe that there wasn't a fire, given the fact that they were just full of fuel, you know, a turbine engine, six hundred and eighty degrees right. centigrade. You know, like it's just a whole lot of fire and fuel, and it, none of it happened. And I was just so thankful. Uh, a, nobody got hurt, and B, that you know things can get fixed. Sure. And we got them fixed. That happened in February. Uh, we had them both back up flying in June, God. which was a monumental task and. You know, again, I, I can't thank my staff enough for putting in 16, 17 hour days, day after day after day to make that happen. Oh, and, and for a lot of people in the industry that don't know, you guys do all your own maintenance in house, don't you? Yeah, we do pretty much everything. Um, you know, we had contracted out some people to help us with that project because it was <laughs> a I had insurance money, which was awesome. And uh, and B, like there was no way we could have got we couldn't have handled that by itself. But, you know, Justin and his crew. Uh, who you know, Dean, you know, Justin. Oh yeah, very and, well, um, very well. He, uh, man, he put so many hours into getting those airplanes going that, uh, you know, we all did, but he was the boots on the ground, like making sure that it was happening. As and, long as, and, uh, as long as it's and, not his alter ego, Owen doing the work. <laughs> yeah, Owen, yeah I, I think Owen got retired on that trip. That's good. Yeah, I bet he did. That fucking snapped Owen right out of it. Um, for, yeah, for anybody true. that knows Justin Carr, they're laughing right now because uh, uh, Owen was his alter ego with the wig, which I fucking love that guy. Oh, man. Now, yeah. I remember seeing the pictures of those two planes kissing, and I think my heart sunk probably almost as far as yours did, yep. and I didn't think about the sound that it would have made as they collided. I thought about the second just before they would have collided and what must have been going through her mind. Because at that moment when you realize there is no fix in it. (laughs) Fuck me. (laughs) For sure. We made a pretty good documentary on it. It's on Vimeo uh, titled The Accident. And uh, it was really cool that uh, I had people that – our instructors for AMPs mm. and flight instructors that asked me if they could use that video in their curriculum and they're like, I'm like, sure, man. And you know, like the saying in skydiving is that, that let the dead teach the living, right? Like there's no reason we should live through an accident twice sure. yep. if it was preventable. You know, if somebody can learn something from that, gosh, man, like why wouldn't we want to distribute that and make that public? Well, that's, a, and, that's uh, another big thing that uh, uh, Scott of Chicago is known for as well as the training that goes into the staff, not just the jump staff, but the, the pilots and the mechanics that go into it. Um, a lot of people don't realize that most jump pilots uh, literally just get thrown into it. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I was kind of thrown into things uh, to one degree or another, and it's trial by fire. You get it right uh, or you're done but uh you guys go a long way to make sure that your staff is on their game and that's a big deal yeah i mean like if we ever want to make skydiving not this fandango sport like we as an industry need to put our best foot forward and we have to stop living in this you know false reality that you know we're just 
this bastard industry and that involves training, you know, that involves investing in your, in your team and, and, uh, not just, you know, Hey, pull this off. Well, we don't want to pull it off. Right. Like sure. we're too, especially like, especially drop zones of the caliber of, you know, mine and other, you know, big drop zones that are around the, that are on the nation. Like we can't just pull it off. No. Like we have to be a respectable industry. And that starts with, you know, let's, let's hire good people. Let's train them well. And, you know, let's show the world that we're not well, and, these crazy people. Sure. Well, and I don't think it's a stretch to see that, uh, sometime in the near future, aviation regulation will eventually touch skydiving. And for the most part, skydiving is gone. They've gotten lucky for a very, very long time. Yeah, self-regulating. Oh yeah. How much better it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, that up. A, part, a part 91 <laughs> is the most amazing thing ever. And if you have too many accidents and too many incidents and too many people flaunting that, it's not going to be part 91 anymore. And I don't know of an operation in the United States that could survive under a, a 121 or a 135 operation. Well, for those that don't, that direction, didn't it? And for, it for those that, that don't know what that is, that just means a fuckload of, of regulation from the government, um, which is not necessarily a good thing because the government generally sometimes doesn't know jack shit about aviation um yeah and for the industry right like they maybe know certain things but like if that were to happen a jump prices would be 40 to 50 dollars a skydive yeah. tandems would be 350 to 400 dollars because of the amount of manpower that would go into everything oh, yeah. and it just wouldn't be as fun and it doesn't mean we need to it doesn't mean that i should say that again like I don't think that we have to change what we're doing. We just have to make sure that there's a thought process going into what we're doing yeah. and it that there's education and there's not just this like let's pull it off mentality. Sure. But no, let's let's do what we do and just do it well. Well, and as long as you've got um, the mentality like that, owners like yourself and operations that are doing that, then the local FISDO is not going to feel the need because they're going to realize that it's an operation that is truly being self-regulated, that's being instructed well, that's being run wisely and safely with proper training programs and all that stuff, and, and that's going to keep them from sticking their noses in too deep. Yeah, I, amen. Yeah, okay, yeah fingers <laughs> crossed, right? If only every drop zone owner had the same mentality, it'd be amazing. Yeah, well, no, I mean, come on. The, one of the first uh, uh, skydiving aircraft I flew had a hole so big in between the, the pedals that I could spot by looking in between my feet. <laughs> okay. and and the the scariest part about that is that nobody in this conversation is the least bit surprised at no. that something like yeah. that not at <laughs> yeah, all sure. not at all well as we wrap things up man uh, uh what do people need to know coming up for this upcoming season that you got uh, uh summer's about ready to roll have you got any big events that they're going to want to get ready for other than Summerfest? yeah of course i mean all the fests so we have uh, our memorial day boogie just coming that kind of kicks off the season for us uh we're fourth of july our freedom fest uh we're doing we're bringing back indy 500 races which is a lot of fun for me oh, growing wow. up and we got a killer prize pack for the people that are winning so it's straight up uh head-to-head -head double elimination pylon racing so that should be kind of fun awesome and then uh, Obviously, we have the summer fest, and then we have in our limited packages. So you can come here, pay one amount, jump as much as you want, and uh, there's no real restrictions on that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I tell people to come twice to Skydive Chicago. Come during an event, you see the machine in motion, and then come any other weekend and hang out with us on like a more personal level. 
and uh, kind of get see what it's all about. Sure, sure. Yeah, because I can imagine that uh, coming when things are full swing can be a little bit intimidating for that uh, that new person. So you might want to just sit back and watch that happen, but then get the opportunity to come meet the people behind it all, which is cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So uh, how do they how do they find you online? I'm assuming it's skydivechicago.com? Yep, skydivechicago.com. All the social channels. Um, I guess you could call us too. Cool. <laughs> or, uh, people do that? Check out the website. Yeah, people can still do that, right? Uh, check out the website. It's got the full calendar of events, you know, Facebook, Instagram, all that stuff. We keep that pretty updated. Cool. And um, yeah, come on out. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, it's uh, people making phone calls anymore. Shit, I could barely get you on Skype because that's too old. <laughs> <laughs> I have to reset a password, right? but we're good. <laughs> you got to do it. You got to do it. Well, Rook, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. I'd like to uh, to have you on again sometime down the road, especially as you're edging towards that 200. Uh, I'd like to hear yeah. all about that shit. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate it. Thanks to the fucking pilot and Junior. Appreciate it. Good catching up with yeah, you man, guys. Good catching up with you too. All, all right. the best this season and uh, all the best to the family. Yeah, I appreciate it, guys. Take it easy, brother. Blue skies. Well, there you have it. Another episode of the Lunatic Fringe Podcast brought to you as always by, well, wait, not as always, actually. Brought to you now by Gyro. Formerly known as NZ Aerosports, you'll head to gyro.com for their next level line of canopies by Pussfoot, the Extreme Sports Collective. Head over to Pussfoot.com to check it out. By Summit Parachute Systems, check out SummitParachuteSystems.com to talk to Jarrett Martin and the gang about kick-ass pilot rigs, rigging courses, and more. By Flyaway Indoor Skydiving, go to FlyawayTN.com and check out all the cutting-edge stuff to come. By Pure Spectrum CBD, head to PureSpectrumCBD.com to check out their wide range of CBD products. And as for us, head to the LunaticFringePodcast.com to listen to any of the hundreds of episodes currently available, hit the link for our YouTube channel, pick up your copy of the Lunatic Fringe book or The Accidental Stripper, and get a sneak peek at upcoming guests. Once again, thanks for listening, we'll see you next time.